Hi, I'm Sean, and welcome to the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. In today's episode of the show, I chat again with Michelle Anderson, who's the founder of clarinetmentors.com. We discuss some great teaching tips for young students, older students, and everyone in between. She also explains why you should focus on what you're good at and outsource the rest, and much more. If you enjoy the show and want free episodes every week on your device, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get access to an ad-free extended version of today's episode and many others while supporting the production of the podcast at the same time, please visit clarinet.com slash subscribe to become a patron. You'll get immediate access starting at just $1 per month and you can cancel anytime. Don't forget also that I have a mystery box here from Bakun that I'll be giving away at 10,000 YouTube subscribers. To learn how to win when the time comes, be sure to subscribe to my channel at youtube.com slash clarinet. Thanks so much for listening to the show, and I especially thank our patrons, all 55 of you now. We have two more than last time. Thank you so much for your support. And our sponsors, they help make everything possible here at Clarinet. Encoda is a new app that lets you stream, practice, and perform tens of thousands of music scores. It's kind of like Netflix, but for sheet music. Get a free trial today. Just search for Encoda on your device's app store. That's Encoda, N-K-O-D-A. Take your clarinet to the next level with a mouthpiece, barrel, or bell from Bakun Musical Services. With 14-day trials, free shipping on eligible orders, and expert advice, you can be sure you're making the best choice for your musical needs. For Canadian customers, be sure to check out the new store that allows you to pay in Canadian dollars. And for everyone else listening, I've got an exclusive coupon for you. Just enter code CLARENEAT at checkout to save 10% on your next accessory purchase. That's code CLARENEAT at bakunmusical.com. Imagine a reed that offers complex performance and sound, but is washable, recyclable, consistent, doesn't require moistening, and lasts for months instead of days. It's all possible with Legere Reeds, the world's leading synthetic reed brand made right here in Canada. Legere Reeds are used exclusively by some of the world's greatest clarinetists, including Eddie Daniels, Crown of Giuffredi, David Schifrin, and many others. And now, it's your turn. Experience Legere Reeds at your local music store, or by heading to Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. So I'm back today with Michelle Anderson, directly from Vancouver. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sean. My pleasure to be here. In today's episode, I wanted to kind of pick Michelle's brain a little bit because I know she's such a great and effective teacher. Yeah, absolutely. I think that if there are any players in your audience who are interested in teaching themselves, uh, one of my favorite ways to improve my teaching is during a lesson, if I say something that really resonates with a student and they like it, I'll just jot a quick note to myself. It might be two or three words. And later, after the lesson is done, I'll reflect on it and see if, if you know, if it helped that one student, it's likely to help other students. I'll see if I can articulate it to myself and almost memorize that as, okay, here's my technique for teaching this one particular thing. And I think as teachers, we all borrow things from the great teachers we've had the good fortune to have. And I've, I've had some great teachers in my life, and that helps. And the more we teach, the easier it gets. But I guess, uh, you know, I can throw out some of my favorite teaching tools and pointers, and feel free, anyone listening, to, if you are a clarinetist, to try these yourself, or if you're a clarinet teacher, to try these things with the people that you teach. I think there are some things we can do that make an immediate, noticeable difference in clarinetists. And those are fun because it kind of makes me look like a rock star if I can tell someone, oh, do this, and they sound better instantly. You know, and then, of course, there are other things that are techniques that our body needs to train and takes time. If you're starting out in your community and you want to be a teacher and you want to get students, 
one of the things I did, especially when I was new to Vancouver, is I contacted the school band teachers in my neighborhood, and I asked them if I could come and do a free clarinet workshop. Actually, I didn't say free. I just said, you know, I'd like to do a clarinet workshop at your school, and with your permission, I'll, I'll put up a poster in your band room for clarinet lessons. And some of them, at the end, would just give me a check, and some would say, thanks for coming in. So I sort of Sometimes I did it for free. Sometimes they would actually have money and pay me. Working with groups of students is a good way to find private students if that's something you want to do in your life. And here are some of the things that I like to do if I'm leading a workshop. So I'll share this with you. I will usually have the clarinets sitting in a semicircle, so they're all in one line, but I can easily see all of them. And depending on their level, so this is if they're at least second year or more, and I'll do a simplified version if they're total beginners, um, I'll say to the group, hey, let's, let's warm up together before we start our session, and I'll have them play a C scale in the high register. So starting on the C where all of our fingers are down and tonguing our way up to the dreaded high C with just thumb and register key. You know, as all clarinetists know, that's a fussy note. It's very reactive. And I'll say to the students up front, I'll say, oh, we're going to try this. Because you know what? Those highest notes are really fussy. And um, I'm going to actually ask each of you to do it one by one for me. Because my goal for our workshop today is that I can come up with a pointer for every one of you that's going to make it easier for you to play. So by the time we're finished our session, I want all of you to have something that makes your playing easier. And, and kids will, will buy into that. That makes them excited. And I'll say, I'm going to have each of you play the scale. And you know what? Don't worry if it doesn't work. In fact, if your high notes don't come out, that's really useful information for me because then I'm going to know better how to help you. So I'm trying to let them off the hook. And they'll play. And, you know, I'm going to grab my clarinet. Hopefully I don't overload your mic. A fair number of students will have this kind of experience. And they just can't play those high notes. And what I do, I ask the child to say their name. So, you know, they'll say, hi, I'm Joe. And he'll play. And I'll write Joe's name down. And I'm looking at the student as they're playing that scale. And I'm looking for about five things that I can probably make a difference on immediately. So the things I look at are, first of all, the angle that head is making. A lot of students will look down. And if we get them to look up, not only is their breathing better, but it often helps improve the angle their head makes with the mouthpiece for the best tone. And so let's see, I look at head angle. I look at if they have enough mouthpiece in their mouth. Many students play so close to the tip that they're limiting the resonance they get. I will listen for when they're tonguing, if their air is stopping after each note, you know, ta, 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 which is so common and so natural. And I'll look for that. And I will listen to how their read sounds. When I just did that demonstration and my notes completely wimped out, um, it means the note doesn't have enough support. And that could be that they don't have enough air support, but it's also often a sign that they don't have enough read support, and it could be a soft read. So those five things are all things we can do a really quick improvement on in, in, the, in a short master class. And of course, I'll get into more sophisticated issues too. But I have like a little abbreviation for each of those. So if I'm listening to Joe play his scale and I write down MM under his name, it means I think he needs more mouthpiece. 
If I write HA, it means, oh, there was something about his head angle that I didn't like. If I write SR, oh, I thought he had a soft read. You know, if I write SA, I don't think his, he needs steady air. And, and I just kind of have this little code. And it takes, you know, about 15 seconds per student to go through. And then I have a list of the things that I think could help that particular student. Um, so the class, you know, will finish their playing. I'll say, wow, thank you all so much. This really helped me know. And, and you know, different band teachers have different teaching strengths. And I'll, I'll see what the whole class is doing well. I might say, boy, you, you all are sitting with great posture. I bet your band teacher emphasizes that with you. And it's so great you have a teacher that does that because that's so important. You know, and then I'll say sometimes there are things that are unique to clarinet. So that's what we're going to hone in today. And then I'll say, let's talk about mouthpiece. I will, um, you know, give them a, a simple exercise where I'll say, let's just take an open G and I'll demonstrate it for them. I'll say, I just want you to play your normal way and then put a little bit more mouthpiece in your mouth and try it and put in a little bit more until you hit the horrible squeak. And the kids love because they love hitting the horrible squeak. And I'll say, we're going to make this really quick because someone walking by in the hallway is going to think we're crazy. But then I'll say, well, this might give us more sound. And then I'll look at my paper. And I'll see which students have the MM code. So I'll come back to poor little Joe here. And I'll say, Joe, you know how your high C wasn't wanting to come out? Sometimes just more mouthpiece makes a difference. Can you just try those top four notes again with more mouthpiece? And let's see if we try your normal way first. Let's try it with more mouthpiece. And I'll engage the rest of the room. I'll say, can you listen? Let's figure out which one sounds better. And usually with more mouthpiece, it's going to start working better. We have to recognize band directors are heroes for teaching music to a whole group of classes, but they have different levels of clarinet knowledge. And some of them aren't as attuned to read strength. And a lot of kids started on their two, and they're in their third year playing, and they're still playing twos, and the read's too wimpy for them to get their high notes. And so it's a good opportunity to say, gosh, you know, your, your high notes aren't coming out. You've probably outgrown your read strength. And, you know, we all know there's different manufacturers of reeds, there's different mouthpieces. We can't just say to the kid that this age you need such and such a reed. I do give them a loose guideline. I'll say, you know, as soon as you start playing in a high register, you need at least a two, generally speaking. And as soon as you're playing a high G and higher, you, most of you need at least a two and a half. And I'll ask them, what are you on right now? And I'll say, yeah, sounds to me like, the next time you get reads, you know, you could go up a half size or to say, you know what, I think your reads really making it harder for you because it's so soft for you. I bet if you were to try, you know, this read, you'd sound better right away. And sometimes someone else in the room will raise their hand and say, well, I have a three they can try. And, you know, some kids will help each other out. Sometimes I'll bring in some reads and I'll say, hey, just out of curiosity, try this one. Let's see how it works. And, you know, if you're willing to, to have a box of reeds with you and give one away, that's, that's a gift to the kids. Well, the reed thing is so important. I, I find, um, I sometimes experience exactly what you talked about, whereas they hit a certain age and, and suddenly the teacher is demanding that they use, for example, a three and a half or whatever, and, or even harder. Like I was at a school one time where everyone was on fours and they're all struggling to play. And I was like, well, I mean, that's just, it's a hard read. I'm not playing a four, like, <laughs> you know, so you should play the read that's uh, comfortable but it's going to allow you to play what you want, but it's not going to impede your playing in the sense that you're talking about. Like if you can't play any high notes and you sound kind of thin and you're overpowering the reed, then 
time to go harder. But until you're ready for any of that, it's probably okay. And you're right. It's, I think it's important to say that, that, you know, when everyone's mouthpiece is going to be different, so there's not a set schedule. But I'll say, you know, generally, most people will level off, you know, around a three and a half, three and three quarters to four, depending on your mouthpiece. So just so you know where you're headed. And I'll say that to the students, but I'll say, yeah, you, you can't just put a popsicle stick on and say, now you're super advanced because you can play the hardest read in the world. If I ever catch a situation going on like that with students at, at the school, especially like sometimes some kids are in competition, like you, you ask them which read and I can kind of pick up if they're like, oh, I'm on a four, I'm on a four and a half. And, and they'll say, well, what are you on? And I always say, well, I'm on a 10 because I'm a professional. And they'll all go like, oh, my God. And I'll just tell them I'm joking. And, <laughs> you know, it's actually a three and a quarter or whatever. You're usually quite impressed at first and then kind of let down. But it's it's not a competition, you know, even if it seems like it. I was guilty of that when I was a student. I remember feeling so proud that I was playing on like a four and a half and was the only one in the band. And it was like, well, a few years later, that was not what I need to be doing. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, when I'm teaching groups of kids, that's something that can make a noticeable difference. And even... If someone has a read that's very soft, if I can ask them if it's okay for me to adjust their read, if it's placed low on the mouthpiece, and often kids are taught, you know, put your read on so you just see a little black line over the tip, then I'll move the read up so the tip's over the top of the mouthpiece, and I'll say, let's see if this makes it easier. And usually it does. The high notes will come out better. And I'll just say, well, that's a good indicator that a read that's stronger is, is better for you. So I think if you went up, you know, half size, you're going to have even better results. Um, that's something we can do that makes an instant improvement for people. And that's such a great way to try a harder read without buying a harder read. Yeah. And in fact, sometimes if it's really soft, I'll move their read up a little too high. And I'll say to them, I've just moved your read too high. So it's going to sound kind of fuzzy. But what I'm curious to find out is if your high notes still come out more easily. And if they can blast through high G, A, B, and C, and it pops out, I'll say, wow, so there you go. Now, obviously, we can't keep your read this high because it's, it's hard to play and you're not going to sound good. But to me, that's our, our test to see if you need a, a stronger read. And the answer is yes, you do. You know, so that's a, a little trick you can use. And then, you, then you'll say, for now, let's put it as high as we can get away with. And, you know, that's what you should do on your softer reads. And I'll say to them, if you're, when you're moving up a size, you know, for cane reads, I think you can have them lower to make them act a little softer when, when they're moving up to a stronger size and higher as they get lighter. Sean, I don't know if you play synthetic reads. I play Leger European Cut. They play better with the tip, at least on my setup, just above the tip of the mouthpiece and with the ligature cranked tight, which is different from how I would play on cane reads. Because they're not moistened and they're not fibrous, they don't create a seal with the mouthpiece um, like cane reeds do. So I also find you got to really tighten them a lot. Yeah. So if I have students on synthetic reeds, I'll have the ligatures higher than usual and, uh, and tightened quite a bit. And they seem to respond much better. That was some great tips for, for group lessons. Um, I've had situations before where I had to teach a very young student, whether it was because they were very interested in clarinet. We're talking like six or seven or their school for some reason was starting very early. Um, do you have any advice for very young kids who, you know, they might even be too young to cover the holes properly or to, to really be reading music yet or anything like that? I'll, I'll be fairly brief with this because personally, I think if a, if a child can't comfortably cover the holes, you're just setting that child up to be frustrated. And I don't think it's fair to the child. So, you know, just say to the parents, 
clarinet might be a great instrument, but we need to wait till they're big enough to do this, you know, and call me in four years. I have said that to people. Um, having said that, I guess if I had a student, I would look for the funnest possible things that we could do using just the left hand where the holes are a bit smaller. There's a duet book that I love. Um, it's called Tunes for Two. It has a bunch of well-known songs that you can do with five or six notes and almost all with the left hand. And I've even recommended it to, I've had students who've had right hand injuries, you know, surgery on their wrist or something, but they kind of want to keep practicing so their lips stay in shape. And I'll say, yeah, you can at least play these tunes. They're, they're good tunes. It has things like uh, Vivaldi Spring, do, 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 and it's all on easy notes that you can play. Is it Christopher Tambling? Yes. Okay, I just looked it up on Amazon here. Looks like it's out of print, unfortunately. Oh, well, hopefully there's still copies out there. Okay, snap them up if you can. They're really good. And it's one of my favorite books to use with beginners whose hands can cover the holes because they get to play. There's fun things, you know, when the saints go marching in and the entertainer and um, that one, they need two hands to play, but it's pretty easy. And as a teacher, I love playing duets with my students. Every in-person lesson, I do a little bit of duet playing because I know for myself, one of the ways I learned best was um, I went to the Aspen Music Festival for a few summers and they have this lovely tradition where in their top orchestra, the students sit beside some of the best professionals in the world and play with them. And I felt like I learned more doing that than anything else, you know. And so I think for our students, if we play with them, there's so much they learn by playing along. So I, I recommend that in your one-on-one teaching program for anyone who's teaching lessons. I had a similar program when I was in university, actually. They had this thing called the protege program where you'd audition. And then if you were accepted, you'd get to go to a week of rehearsals with the Philharmonic and just sit in with like your teacher and the other, the other players and play the rehearsals. And it was like, wow, this is, you know, worth years of <laughs> schooling to me. It was so amazing to just sit there and and be part of it. And yeah, I mean, that actually to me ended up kind of at the time sending me into some subbing situations because I remember one of those times I'd sat there through the rehearsals and they're like, there was actually some sort of emergency someone couldn't play. And they're like, look, can you join the musicians union by the end of the week and play the concert? And I was like, whoa. <laughs> and uh, I was able to do that and have my first professional playing gig because of this awesome, you know, integration program with the students and the local orchestra. That's great. That's what a great program to have. Yeah, I don't know if they still do it, um, but it was really great at the time. It was really kind of an eye-opening thing. So, yeah, I, I, d I definitely agree about the very young players. I love the idea of that left-hand stuff. I actually had myself, um, it's funny you mentioned this whole whole booklet, because when I had a young student like this, and several actually, I actually wrote up about 10 little easy songs and duets on my computer. They were all left-hand. I, I called the booklet Left-Hand Tunes, I think. And it was just exactly what you talk about, like Vivaldi and anything else I could think of to play on one hand. It was super helpful, and I think the kids found it super fun. So, you know, that's a good point. You know, we often, I think, as teachers rely a lot on materials, but there comes a point where you can make your own materials. And, I mean, someone like you, Michelle, you, you've turned it into an entire online business you're, you're teaching, but it doesn't have to be that level. I mean, if you just want to create a little booklet, you can get printed up and sell your students for $10. I mean, it's a great little tool to have. That's a very good point, and it's not very hard to write our own music. And if you don't want to mess around with software and stuff, uh, here's a good resource for listeners. I, I, I do have Sibelius, and I tend to do a lot of my own worksheets. But 
I encountered a service called Fiverr.com, F-I-V-E-R-R.com. And it's just kind of the site where when it started, it was a whole bunch of people who would do stuff for $5. It's five U.S. dollars. Um, now that it's become more established, you know, some of the items are more expensive, but there's lots of good resources on there. And there's people who will take your handwritten music and transcribe it for you. Um, I actually connected through Fiverr with a bass clarinetist who plays in the Macedonia National Orchestra. He's amazing, and he transcribes stuff super fast. So I can send him things and say, you know, maybe I'll find a public domain violin duet that looks really nice for clarinets, and it's in a bad key, and I'll say, hey, can you just put this in this key for clarinets? And, and because he's a clarinetist, he knows how to rewrite it. And I think it's $5 U.S. for two pages. He'll do it and pop it back, and he's great. You know, I've used Fiverr before for a lot of things, actually. And it's so funny because I first heard about it reading a book. I don't know if you're familiar with the author, but Timothy Ferris, have you heard of him? Hmm, absolutely. Yeah, he wrote a book called The 4-Hour Work Week, which honestly takes everything way too far. But like one of the things he was advocating is spend the time doing what you're good at doing and outsource everything else. So in, for a musician, if you have a full schedule teaching and you're making a decent wage teaching, it's maybe not worth your time learning how to use Sibelius and writing up your own scores. Like if you can go on a website like Fiverr and, and get people to do the work for you, you're kind of freeing up yourself to do what you do best and getting the benefit of whatever you're trying to create without needing that skill. So it's not that one should not get the skills and, and you know, if they really want to, but I mean, I also find working with music notation software to be a nightmare, a nightmare, as I say, That'd be super valuable. I've never thought about using Fiverr for that. So that's a great tip. Well, yeah, look for Sasko Clarinet. He's great. What's the name? Well, his name is Sasko, S-A-S-K-O. If, if you post links anywhere, Sean, I'll send you the link. I do. I have a show notes page, which is always available at clarinet.com. I hope this guy doesn't get overwhelmed by requests now, but that'd be good for him, I guess. <laughs> there are many people on that site, but he happens to be a clarinetist, which means that I don't have to give him as thorough directions. Sometimes I can just say, here's the worksheet, make sure it's in a good range. And I mean, it's not not quite that much, but I know he will make good judgment calls. And sometimes he'll write to me and say, hey, I put this bar here, what do you think? And I'll say, oh, that was a good call. Thank you for that. You know, so he's, he's smart. I love that. And remember too, not everything's $5. Some of the things go up a fair bit, even if it's you know 40 or $50, if it saves you five or six hours of your time and someone else has the skill and can do it quickly, why not do that, right? So I think it's a, it's a great website, really interesting anyways. And for the record, um, Fasco's rates are very low. I will often uh, top them up because he does a great job and I think he deserves to be paid for it. And you know, as it happens, the currency exchange is very good so that he's making a decent rate once he converts it to his own currency. But I still think, yeah, it saves me so much time and energy and you're right, Sean. I think if we're trying to make a go of it in the world, the things that we don't have time or energy for, giving it to someone else can allow us to really put time into things where it makes the most difference for us. Well, and if you're uncomfortable outsourcing, just realize that you already do it. Like, I very much doubt that you're growing your own lettuce in the middle of December um, or that you're providing your own propane or natural gas or whatever to heat your house. And, you know, you're already outsourcing a significant amount of your, your tasks, just not the ones that you think about every day. And that's exactly what outsourcing is. You don't have to think about it, <laughs> right? I mean, unless you're totally off grid, you're outsourcing probably 80% of your life if you really think about it that way. So 
a little bit of music notation or whatever else you need assistance with is totally reasonable in my opinion anyways. Yeah. You know, Sean, I'm thinking back to our original topic, which was just any teaching pointers that I have. And I mean, it's such a huge topic. You know, I have pointers out there. But I think I would give different teaching pointers to a high school teacher than I would to somebody who's teaching clarinet lessons at a different level. There's one tool that I find really helpful, and I, I think I'll share it with your listeners because if there are clarinet teachers listening who aren't familiar with it, it's really useful, and I use it with all ages of my students. So I'm going to describe it, and this is easier shown on video, but I'm just going to describe it. It's a fingering that's an alternate fingering for the high G sharp that sits right on top of the staff. And it's a horribly unresponsive fingering. So I rarely use it for G sharp, although sometimes I do. But what's wonderful about this fingering is its unresponsiveness works in two different ways. And it's, it becomes a diagnostic tool for you as a teacher to get some insight as to some problems your students might have. So let me describe the fingering. And those of you listening to this, you just have to try it on your clarinet. It's thumb register key, first two fingers on the left hand, so now it's like I'm playing a high A. Then I leave the third hole uncovered, and now I add the first two fingers on my right hand. So it's kind of like I'm playing the E at the top of the staff, but then I've lifted up the third finger on my left hand. Hopefully that's a good verbal description. If all goes well, it'll sound like a high G sharp. However, it usually doesn't. And it's even sometimes my good university students will try this and they don't get that sound. It will squeak very, very easily. It's so common to have people do that fingering and, and we just hear a squeak. And that's an indication that that student may be biting with you know, excess jaw pressure on the reed, which is very, very common. And what they need to do in order to make this note respond is not to bite. And so then I'll usually encourage them to really bring the corners of their mouth in to offer more sideways support to kind of counter that jaw support. The second thing that this fingering will do very easily is get that growly undertone sort of like this. And that sound, if you take away the biting support, sometimes that sound happens. It means their air is not moving quickly enough to have the reed vibrating optimally. And so it's really useful. Sometimes you have someone who sounds pretty good, but you're not sure what's going on. I find if I can get a student to play that note loud and clear, they're not biting, they're using good air, and then I'll have them play some little passage of the music they were just working on with that same feel. It sort of gives them the feel of what it feels like to play with better embouchure, better air. They're going to sound way better instantly. And then if they're more advanced, you will tell them to try and keep working on that note till they can play it very softly. It's actually quite challenging to play that fingering really softly. I use it in my warm-up almost all the time. If I'm warming up before a rehearsal, I'll just take that note and see if I can come in with just my air as soft as possible. And if I can, I know my upper body's relaxed, but my air is really engaged, my blowing muscles. So it's, it's one of my favorite tools. I love that. I love how, you know, over the years you can develop all these kind of little tricks and things um, to sort of uh, troubleshoot problems, you know, with, with playing. And uh, it's something that if you're just starting out teaching, don't worry, you'll, you'll come to these things as you teach. But it's also so important to do things like 
listening to the podcast and watching Michelle's videos and watching other teachers because I think that if I could go back with my teaching, one of the mistakes I made was was not using enough resources early on because you can't just come out of a performance degree and be a brilliant teacher. You need to sometimes have a little bit of pedagogical mindset shift and put yourself back in that beginner player's shoes and, and figure out how to sound bad again. <laughs> well, it's so helpful. And I, you know, to this day, I will go to any master classes that I can. And I'm delighted when I pick up new teaching techniques because there's so many out there. The more we have in our toolbox, the better we are as teachers. Well, and I've always been taught or heard that you should always sound your best, you know, but I think one of the best things to do when teaching is to actually demonstrate and show that you can make it sound bad too, because students not only really relate to that, but they're like, wait a second. So the changes he's suggesting or she, they actually work, <laughs> you know? I think a great example of that is if you're trying to teach kids about voicing, you know, to have their tongue in a higher position. That's, that's such an abstract concept. It's so hard for a student who's never thought of this to know even what their tongue is doing. I'll often play the game with them of taking the high C, thumb and register key, and saying, you know, imagine we're going to say hee while we're playing clarinet. And I'll, I'll have a neck strap on so that I can do that but still have one hand free. And I'll, I'll take my right hand and I'll um, say, this is my magic x-ray machine. And I'll hold my hand um, almost like an orthodontic hand signal where it, where it looks like it's arched high like my tongue. And as I'm moving my tongue, I'll, I'll change the shape of my hand until it shows it low in the mouth. And of course, what the kids hear, I can just do that for us right now. They hear the pitch go way down, and if I'm pointing at them, I'll play it loudly enough that it gets really awful at the bottom, and they'll plug their ears, and they'll laugh, and I'll say, yeah, I'm just moving on. But kids love hearing that, and then I'll say, let's all try that, and I'll say, if you can't make a huge change, odds are you're pretty good at the bad stuff, because we're all good at that, but maybe you're not quite getting it high enough, you know, and we'll, we'll play games like that, but I think you're right. Sounding bad is really helpful for the students. Well, this is going back a long way, but way back on like episode five of the podcast, I think it was with Lori Friedman, she was talking about this too and how we're often too judgmental of these so-called bad sounds. Like if you squeak a G, open G, that's great. You just hit a high D. It's just the wrong fingering that we're trying to learn right now. And, uh, you know, we'll come back to that sound later. But for now, let's try and get this lower sound, you know, because it's one of the problems I found with teaching, maybe you can relate to this, is that Students have a really hard time with the altissimo register because they've been taught that squeaks are bad and the altissimo is basically just controlled squeaking. So it's this weird kind of cognitive dissonance. I've had people literally come up to me and be like, I can't get this note and they'll play it. And I'll be like, well, that is the note. I mean, we can maybe work on the tone quality, but like look on the tuner that that's a high C sharp or a D or whatever. Um, and they're shocked. They can't believe that that's, that's actually a note. Oh, that's so interesting. But I will say, Sean, just for your resources, um, I have a web page that has some teaching pointers, and I'm happy to put a link to that in your show notes if people are interested. Some of it are, are recorded presentations that I've done at music teacher association training. So they're designed for band teachers, but if you're a clarinet teacher who may be going into schools and teaching younger kids, I think it would be really helpful. So I'll put a link to that there. It's just it's a video anyone can watch and learn from. 
And I'm very happy if people want to get in touch with me to just email me at michelle at clarinetmentors.com. You know, if they have questions, I'm happy to answer as I can. Sometimes I'm a little slow to respond, but I do answer my emails and, and I enjoy hearing from people. I love that. And so anything you want me to put in the show notes, just send me a link in an email and I'll throw it all up there for our listeners. Before we wrap up today's episode, I do want to thank you so much for coming on not once, but twice now. It's been a long time in the making and I'm so thrilled we finally got the chance to do this. Um, But was there any last kind of teaching tip for the audience before we wrap up? Yeah, I'll throw out one more thing just very quickly that I've been really experimenting with how to teach kids to read music from a rhythmic point of view. And I have some students who just have really had trouble playing with steady rhythm. They play and they're speeding up and slowing down and seem to have no awareness of it. And what's been a game changer for me, and if if you're not using this in your teaching, it might be something to consider, is having some kind of pulse training where people are tapping all over their body. It's not just clapping hands. You know, we'll often have kids clap rhythms, but... I'll turn on a metronome and first of all the very simple form is they just clap along with the metronome but instead of clapping their hands you know beat one's on top of their head beat two might be their shoulder beat three is their elbow there's something about engaging our whole body where our brain not only our hand feels it the part of our body that we just connected with feels it and it fires off different neurons in our brain and it starts to make our body way more aware of pulse Sometimes I'll have kids sing their part while they're simply tapping the pulse all over their body. And then the next stage might be then instead of clapping the rhythm, you know, one and a two, and a, maybe they're doing the one and a two, but they're not just clapping hands, they're clapping it again all over their body. This seems to integrate a sense of pulse way more quickly than anything else I've ever done teaching-wise. So. I'll just say experiment with that. I, I really think it's powerful. And I've had students with, you know, strong learning disabilities where reading is challenging, have great results with this kind of approach to it. You know, and then we'll just take one pattern a week, but do all kinds of engaged full body stuff, and it really helps. So that popped into my head when you said one more teaching pointer. I love that because I wouldn't have thought to ask that either. So it's a interesting pointer I've never considered before. Excellent. Well, thank you, Sean. Really, it's my pleasure to finally chat with you here on the podcast. And I I appreciate what you give to the clarinet world through your many episodes. Thanks so much for coming on again. You've offered some incredible advice about, you know, YouTubing and being creative with your career and uh, teaching and everything. And so one more time as a reminder to the audience, you can check out Michelle's work at clarinetmentors.com and her YouTube channel at youtube.com slash clarinetmentors. So Thank you again, Michelle, for coming on the show. Thank you much, John. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. If you'd like to send me a guest suggestion, some feedback, or even just say hi, I'd love to hear from my listeners all over the world. You can send me a message at feedback at clarinet.com. If you're enjoying the show and want to get free episodes on your device every week, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn how to enter the Bakun Mystery Box giveaway when it becomes available on YouTube, be sure to subscribe at youtube.com slash clarinet. 
And if you've listened all the way to this point in the podcast, this is the end and you are a true fan and you are awesome. But don't forget that there's more to this episode and many others like it at clarineat.com slash subscribe. You'll get immediate access for as little as $1 per month to ad-free extended episodes just like this one. A little secret is I also upload the episodes there in a higher audio quality and you can still listen on your favorite podcast player. Again, that's clarineat.com slash subscribe. Also, the show is brought to you by our sponsors. We've got Encoda, which is kind of like a Spotify or Netflix for sheet music. You can try it out for 30 days at Encoda.com. That's N-K-O-D-A.com. We also have Legere Reads, of course. And you know what's really funny is I've been talking about the stability of those reads. And the weather here has just been totally flip-flopping. So last week, I kid you not, it was in the minus 30s in my community in Calgary here. And today, the snow is melting, the sun is out. So this is the kind of weather where you're so happy, trust me, to have reeds that are consistent, they don't warp, and they're going to last for a really long time and not be affected by this kind of bizarre weather pattern. So check Legere reeds out. They're made in Canada. I've been using them for a really long time. I love them. And you can learn more at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E.com. And last but not least, we have Bakun Musical Services. You can save 10% as a Clarinet listener with an exclusive coupon. Just enter code Clarinet at checkout at bakunmusical.com. This applies to mouthpieces, barrels, bells, cases, any accessory purchase. And yes, it does include the newest line of Vocalese, which is the Vocalese CG and the Vocalese Z series mouthpiece. Now, both of these, the Vocalese CG is kind of a clear material. I think you'll really find it to be interesting. But the Z, or Z as I call it in Canada here, but the Z mouthpiece is a very wide tip opening, which has huge projection and is going to be loved by a lot of people who play klezmer music, jazz music, or anyone who just really loves a full sound with a big tip opening. So you can hear more about these mouthpieces on the next episode of the podcast with Richard Hawkins. We're also going to talk about mouthpiece sanitation and how amazingly taking care of your mouthpiece won't just help keep it clean, but will actually help it last longer by maintaining its shape. So we'll go more into that on the next episode. But for now, Sean Perrin, your host, signing off from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I look forward to seeing you next time for more of what's new and neat for clarinet with the neatest people in the industry on the Clarinet Podcast. Podcast.